Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Monday, July 23rd. While everyone I know is obsessing about the Barbie versus Oppenheimer standoff this weekend, another much less expensive movie quietly passed $100 million at the box office with little sign of slowing. Sound of Freedom, a $14.5 million child sex trafficking drama starring Jim Caviezel, the Tom Cruise of faith-based movies, is absolutely killing it. It opened on July 4th and actually outgrossed Indiana Jones that day. It's beating Mission Impossible on some days. So what's happening here? A couple things. Sound of Freedom joins a long list of religious movies that have become hits by appealing to an audience that Hollywood has long underserved. The studios do sometimes target Christian audiences, but the thinking that I've noticed is that it's not the core specialty of the studios, and these movies often don't play well overseas, which is so important to them. Second, this movie in particular did some pretty unique things. It was made back in 2018 by Mexican director Alejandro Monteverde. It was funded by wealthy investors. Fox had distribution rights, but then gave up the movie when the company was sold to Disney in 2019. And it was eventually acquired by Angel Studios, a company based in Utah. They do faith-based movies, and the founders previously had a company called VidAngel that sold versions of Hollywood movies with the sex and swear words cut out. The studio sued and shut down a lot of those services. Angel has a crowdfunding model where they reach out to a group of like a thousand friends and backers of the studio, and they raised about five million bucks to distribute and market the movie. Then they have a system called, quote, pay it forward, where people who see the movie are invited at the end to contribute to a fund that pays for other people to see it. It's a unique strategy, and it's definitely working. Churches and other groups are buying thousands of tickets, so much so that some theaters are sold out yet empty. I'm sure you've seen some of those TikToks and Instagrams going around. It also hasn't hurt that the themes of this movie, like standing up to child trafficking and pedophiles, also coincide with the QAnon conspiracy theory. So even though the filmmakers say this is not a QAnon movie, it's certainly been embraced by the right wing and QAnon fans, which happened to include its star, Jim Caviezel. So is this a fluke or are there any business lessons from this movie? 
That's the topic today. We've got Lucas Shaw in here to discuss Sound of Freedom, the low-key crowdfunded QAnon-adjacent smash of the summer. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. And Lucas, we're talking about a movie that neither of us has seen. That is a little rare on this show. Uh, apologies for not having done the work and the research. But we're talking today about Sound of Freedom. Still time. You could go out this weekend. We're taping this on Friday. You could go out this weekend and see it before this runs. You know, the, the problem is, is that I'm out on the North Fork of Long Island this weekend, and there is no movie theater here. There was a movie theater in a town called Mattituck, which has since closed. And I would have to drive two hours to get to my closest theater. So not only will I not be seeing Sound of Freedom, I am missing the the Barbenheimer. Oh, too bad for you. Uh, I thought you were going to say that you're in Long Island with a bunch of godless New Yorkers who have no interest in seeing this movie and it is not playing. But uh, that is a separate issue. So I don't want to overstate what's going on here because there is a long history in Hollywood of faith-based movies doing well at the box office and sort of shocking the coastal elites who say, wait a second, what is this Jesus movie? What is God's Not Dead? What are these movies that come out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're number two at the box office from a studio that nobody's ever heard of and it's outside the Hollywood system? And there are studios like Lionsgate and like Sony Pictures that have divisions that specialize in the faith-based movie. And these movies can not cost a lot and they can do very well. Obviously, everyone talks about Passion of the Christ in 2004, doing 370 million worldwide. But there is a decent business to be had in the faith-based movies like The Sun or Miracles from Heaven. And then the kind of quasi-faith-based where they can attract an audience that is not necessarily going for the religious element, but the audience that cares about the religious element knows that it's there and can be marketed to. Things like Soul Surfer, about the surfer who uh, got bitten by a shark, things like that. So I don't want to overstate that, but something else is going on with this movie. And I want to talk about that because that is what is instructive to the film industry. And it is the crowdfunding and the engagement and activism element of this movie that interests me. What I don't know, because we've seen crowdfunding take off before, you know, it's been around for, I'm sure there were analog versions of it, but the digital versions of it around Kickstarter and Indiegogo a decade ago, where Zach Braff raised money for a movie that way. And it seemed for a moment like that could be the hot new trend in the movie business. It didn't prove to be sustainable um, or something that really worked at scale. It was also, I think, part of the the promise or the excitement that people had around Web3, which was this idea that you could sort of give fans equity or ownership or some stake in the business. So as a concept, engaging your fans in that way makes a ton of sense. I will say I am broadly skeptical that this can work in a lot of cases because there seem to be a lot of unusual circumstances around this, both with the subject being faith-based also, this this whole pay it forward model. I just like don't know how many people are going to do that for some random comedy just because it's it's something that appeals to them. Right. So let's talk about that, because what's interesting here is the call to action. If you go to see this movie at the end, the star, Jim Caviezel, comes on and he basically says, you know, this is an important issue, this child sex trafficking issue. And he connects 
the issue in the movie to people buying tickets, paying it forward to a fund where more people can go see the movie. And that's a difference. Most movies that are issue based and have a, a tag on the end, you know, this happened or call your congressman or whatever, they don't connect the activism to the economics of the film. Here, They've convinced these audiences to support the cause by supporting the movie. And that is a brilliant economic move here. Angel Studios, like, hats off to you. I know, I don't know what your politics are, probably not mine, but like, that is brilliant because they're getting these churches and faith based businesses and wealthier individuals and just mom and pop out of the movies to say, I loved this. I care about this. I want others to see it. And here's a convenient way for me to allow that. And whether the people actually show up to see it when it's been paid forward is debatable because you've seen the TikToks out there. I've seen it. I get texts from Hollywood movie people who say like, oh, I was just at the Grove and I popped my head into a sold out screening of Sound of Freedom and there were three people in there. And it's because I believe they are buying tickets based on the this pay it forward system and then putting it out there either with Instagram ads or whatever to people to come see it. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. What do you think is the attendance rate for people who <laughs> who get a ticket paid for by them? I don't know. 20 percent. I, I, I honestly don't know. But you also don't get to 100 million just because of that. I've had people text me also saying I popped my head into a screening and it was three quarters away full. And these are not just the faith-based QAnon crowd. Jim Caviezel, the star, is out there proselytizing about QAnon, and he's sort of, the themes in the movie are kind of QAnon adjacent. It's not overt, so they can say this is not a QAnon movie. But if you know anything or watch the documentaries about QAnon, you know there is a pedophile element and sex trafficking, and this movie stands up against all that. So it does appeal to that. And Jim Caviezel's a big star. He's like the Leo DiCaprio of the faith-based crowd. When he's in a movie, it's a big deal. So He is having, Q. He is not Q. Yeah, you clearly have not watched the documentary on HBO. It's I have watched that documentary. Okay, so you know that Jim Caviezel is not Q. But he is a big fan. They got Donald Trump to go to a screening. He sat through the whole thing, amazingly. And it's now something that if you are in that crowd, you now feel it's the Barbie of the faith-based crowd. If you don't see it, you're going to have FOMO. Well, look, it has outperformed a lot of far more expensive and more hyped movies this year. I forget if we've talked about it on the pod or just offline, but I, I think you're probably right that it has hurt the performance of Mission Impossible. I think so. I, I think that that crowd, the older crowd that may have just gone to see Mission Impossible because they love Tom Cruise is going to see this. But I guess what I'm curious, given the, the subject, do you do you think you'll see any you'd ever see a traditional studio experiment with this type of model? Or what about the smaller studio like an A24 or to some extent a neon that has they have an audience that cares about them, that's passionate about it? Would they respond to a call to action or is the way that they're more likely to make money from those super fans by like A24's little store where you can like buy a T-shirt or buy a sweatshirt? Well, that's different. That's a branding thing. And, and what I see as the biggest comp here is something like what Participant Media does. Participant is Jeff Skull's media company. He's an eBay 
billionaire and he has a film company with a dual purpose of making good quality films and also having a social element to those films where there's activism and a campaign and they they do a lot of this advocacy stuff around their films but I don't recall, and I'm sure I'll get an email from David Lindy, who runs it, or someone else there. I don't recall participant having a, connecting the advocacy to the actual promotion of the movie, where you can go to this website and you can buy tickets for other people to see this movie and spread the word. And that is different because there's a lot of advocacy that goes on at the end of certain movies. You know, you go to see an environmental documentary or you go to see something that has a cause at its root. And typically the Hollywood studios have created campaigns around this, but not to see the movie further. They do it to raise awareness of the cause. That's what's so innovative here. And I do think studios should be doing it. Why not? If you can do this in a tactful way and say like, if you care about this, donate here and we will show this movie to children on you know, field trips or whatever that will spread the message of the movie while also raising its box office. Yes. If you if you care about the female empowerment message of Barbie, please pay it forward. <laughs> the Warner Brothers Discovery executive pay packages really need you to pay this forward and send the Barbie screenings around the world. But, you know, I, I mentioned it before. This is not just the QAnon crowd that is seeing this. I mean, if you look at some of the exit surveys and stuff, and even the guy, Neil Harmon, did an interview with Bloomberg where he said it's clear evidence of a filmmaker knowing their audience and how to reach them. This one has taken on a life of its own. You see Marines, veterans saying we've got to help these kids. So that is an example where the messaging of the movie is getting around and it's reaching beyond just that core faith-based group. Apparently, Latinos are over-indexing on this movie as well. It's a Mexican filmmaker who shot in Colombia. And, um, you know, the child trafficking issue is resonant. And the Latino audience tends to be a little bit more religious than other audiences. But this is not just a right-wing phenomenon. Well, we don't know that. <laughs> but you can fill a theater or gross $100 million with primarily a conservative audience going to see it. But you're right that it is not just a fringe right-wing phenomenon, and it is not just QAnon. It is, it is touching on all those different audiences. You have these movies or projects or songs or certain things that make a big splash, get a big following, and people are always quick to draw, try and draw some conclusion from it. And sometimes you absolutely can, and sometimes you can't. And so... I, again, am mostly curious if anyone will, if this is a one-off or not, right? Like, you, we talked about faith-based movies at the top. Like, okay, Passion of the Christ happens, and everyone gets really excited about faith-based movies. But it's not like there's some big new faith-based hit every three months. No, but they do come out. The faith-based movies, especially around the Easter holiday and things like that, that you do see them a lot. And if and a hit like God's Not Dead does spawn sequels. There's, like, the whole Dinesh D'Souza genre of movie where it's like the skewed documentaries that appeal to the right-wing crowd. Those come out and they do okay. It's not that unusual to see these movies do well in theaters. So that's why I, I hesitate to say, oh my God, this is out of nowhere. Sound of Freedom is a new paradigm. It's not. We've seen this before, but they are doing it in a way I think that is innovative. 
And, you know, this whole notion, I loved this. There's a conspiracy theory to go along with this, that the theaters were somehow sabotaging the movie, like the projector would malfunction and people would post and be like, they don't want us to see this, which is amazing. It just it's another like victimization tactic where it's like we are the oppressed. You got to go see this movie to support it. Like Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC Theaters is like, are you kidding me? Why would I sabotage people coming to our theaters? Like we want people to we're desperate for people to come to our theaters. It's amazing, but it's effective marketing. Like this is the whole thing. If you are an underserved audience, when someone tells you we care about you and nobody else does, that's effective. Yeah, it's the movie equivalent of the nobody believes in us sports trope of teams that are underdogs that sort of come out of nowhere and get inspired that way. Yeah, the the notion that any theater wouldn't want a movie to perform right now is is pretty laughable. <laughs> I know Adam Adam Aaron would probably show snuff films if he could if it would drink, bring an audience to his theaters. Yeah, I don't know how the uh, the, the meme stockholders and and AMC feel about that. But also, I mean, because there's so, there's so little coming out after Barbie and Oppenheimer. I mean, couldn't this movie just hang on forever? What if it What if it ends up hitting 150 or 200 million dollars? Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm reading this email from Sean Wolfington, who is a producer on the film, and he sent out a mass email to a bunch of people. And the tone of victimization in it is pretty significant. You know, most people in the industry dismiss the filmmakers as crazy to make a film about this topic. All the big studios, streamers, and distributors passed on the opportunity to fund and distributed. Everybody doubted the decision to release an independent film about child trafficking on July 4th. That kind of stuff. You know, we've been attacked by child trafficking deniers, pro-pedophile groups. Pro-pedophile groups? Like, are they influential? And it's been disheartening. Well, the Democratic dis Party is a pro-pedophile group. <laughs> right, sorry. Bill Gates and the elites. I forgot. Um, but it's been disheartening to witness their efforts to undermine our mission to raise awareness of these horrific crimes. So basically, he's all about the cause. And the marketing for the movie is the cause. But I've got to say, that doesn't work unless the movie delivers. This movie had an A-plus cinema score. The critics didn't like it. But it's certainly hitting an audience. And they do like it. Well, and they'll show up again and again. I mean, that's the thing. You know, one of the great mysteries, I would say, 
that all media companies are trying to figure out right now is how to more effectively engage super fans, which and this is a, a premier example, right? Like there was a there was a study released recently about the music business, and there's been a lot of conversation in the music business about this concept of the super fan and how to get them to pay more, because part of the problem in traditional streaming is everybody pays the same price for Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, Amazon Music, whatever it is. But there are people who are willing to pay more. The folks who will spend $1,000 to go see front row Taylor Swift, people who will buy four CDs of a K-pop group. And there's obviously the same thing in traditional film and TV. You've got the people who have the Disney annual pass. And I think there's there's a belief in, in media right now where with so many businesses on somewhat shaky footing, as, as we discuss every week, engaging the super fan and getting them to spend even more money is, is one path forward, which is why I think some people will take lessons from this, because it's clear that you can get folks to pay a little bit extra or on top of the norm. And if you had a movie where that director or actor had super fans, getting them to do more than just like buy some merchandise, but instead, you know, pay extra for a ticket or something. So soon they're going to be asking us to leave a tip when we go see a movie. <laughs> you don't already? You think that you think that mess you made just cleans itself up? How much would you tip extra for a Brad Pitt movie? <laughs> or just, just a photo? Any Brad, if it's him at Wimbledon, whatever. I'll, I'll, you, you, I'll, get a, you get a signed photo of him at Wimbledon with every Brad Pitt movie that you see. <laughs> So I get that, but they're going further here. Angel Studios has a group of people that they reach out to to help fund the P&A for the movie. Their fans, their super fans are not just passive experiencers of this content. They are helping fund the distribution and marketing of that content. And that's the whole model is they have this group of the angels that they reach out to and say, we have this movie. This is what it is. You know, would you like to come on board? And if it's successful, you get 120% of your money back. And it helps put this content that we all love out into the world. So that is sort of the ultimate expression of fandom is to literally become involved in the release itself. Is there a subject or a movie that would make you donate in that way? Oh, interesting. Uh, Scientology. I love Scientology stuff. If there was a Scientology movie that kind of exposed a lot of the inside of the church, even more than Going Clear, which was fantastic. But I would I would help that. I want to ask you a moral question, though. Do you think that this strategy is dishonest of getting people to fund these movie theater tickets? that are maybe used, maybe not used. I mean, obviously the theaters are going to take the money. I had someone suggest to me that maybe they get a more beneficial split of revenue from the studio because that they need to account for the fact that empty theaters don't sell a lot of popcorn. I don't, I don't know that that's happening. I actually kind of doubt it because I don't think that they would need to. They're just happy that these theaters are sold out. But do you think it's kind of a dishonest strategy to buy tickets for people who don't actually show up? I don't think it's dishonest if you say you're doing it, which they are. Well, they say donate money so people can go see this movie. Then, yes, they make them available and they put Instagram ads out and they get the word out. that You can come see this movie for free thanks to these donors. But if people aren't doing it and these theaters are empty, it does feel a little bit like you're throwing your money away. I think the connection between I'm buying this for someone else and then that ticket actually reaching someone else, like that's the part that's the fuzziest to me. Again, I don't think it's dishonest. I don't think it's immoral, but I would want to know 
how they're doing it. But half the money is going into the pocket of the studio, which is then going into the pocket of these executives. And these people don't, they're not making that connection. They are saying, I care about child sex trafficking. I'm going to donate money so more people can see this movie and raise awareness of this issue and experience what I just experienced and loved. And yet they're essentially paying a tip or extra money to this studio that may or may not do what they want, which is to get more people to see the movie. Well, the studio, they're trying, they're trying. The studio is obviously trying to get more people to see the movie. You're, you're basically giving money to a cause you believe in and, tr- and ignoring the fact that there probably are a couple of people who are getting very rich off of that. Or you're either ignoring it or you're okay with it because they've produced something that you think has an important message and provides value to the world. Great. But, you know, there is a difference between a religious organization, which is ostensibly not a for-profit organization, and a business, Angel Studios, which is a for-profit company that has this element as a business element. Yeah, I mean, I do wish, just as a reporter, that they disclosed the breakdown a little bit, Mm -hmm. because it feels a little bit like they can inflate the numbers. Well, they clearly are, because they're not accounting for actual attendance. There was this trend in music where people would package their album with concert sales. And so people got to claim huge album sales because what was really happening was people wanted to go see the concert. And as part of that, they yeah. got an album. But Bill, Billboard stopped counting those for... Billboard said cut charts. it out. However, it does still happen in some other countries. And it does, I think, still influence some of the global numbers that get reported, which is why you then look and see like there are all these K-pop acts who are at the top And part of it is because it's tied to concerts. Part of it is because they sell like multiple versions that just become collector's items. Nobody's actually listening to all that stuff. They're just buying it. And this is sort of similar where, sure, the theaters are somewhat full, but there also are definitely a lot of tickets that have been sold just because people want to support the cause. Yeah. And it feels a little dishonest. The other distributors in my ear in my text messages are upset about this because if you really look at it, it's wealthy people, it's devotees, it's church groups and others buying out theaters that may or may not have an actual audience. And they want to know if this movie is getting to $100 million, are people actually seeing it? I think the moral of the story is that we need some rich religious friends. (laughs) Exactly. I know. I want a benefactor. We're going to see the movie together. You and I will go together. Craig's seen it four or five times, right, Craig? Yeah, I was actually there opening night. Nice. Uh, All right. Thank you, Lucas. Appreciate the insights. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, are you seeing all these movies that are getting delayed and pushed to 2024 thanks to the continuing writers and actors strike? Yeah, Challengers I saw just got pushed to May 2024, which is a bummer. That is a bummer. I was looking forward to that movie. Zendaya, that's kind of a tennis dramedy, Luca Guadagnino. But this is only the beginning. I mean, a lot of these fall movies, if this strike keeps going, you know, you have to do long lead press. You have to get people all organized to go to these film festivals and to do junkets and stuff. And if they can't guarantee that these actors are going to be available to do it, then the studios are going to have to push. And obviously this puts more pressure on the studios to settle the strike. But I would not be surprised if a lot of these September, October movies start pushing. Which movies do you think rely the most on kind of the press? Like, do you think like the big tentpole movies, the movies like the Marvels, 
which is coming out in November. Are those movies going to stick or do you think it's those type of movies that will get pushed? It's a something that is being debated within these studios pretty intensely right now because I see both sides. Obviously, you have a movie like Marvel's or something like Dune 2, which has you know Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet and Austin Butler and all of these young stars. You kind of need them to be out there promoting Killers of the Flower Moon, the Leo DiCaprio movie with Scorsese. Yeah, perhaps Scorsese can promote, although interestingly, he's in the movie as well, but I think they'll let him promote as a director. But Killers of the Flower Moon kind of depends on Leo telling people it's out there. I think a lot of these movies are dependent on the press that you get from a star. Now, the upside, and this is my prediction today, is that there will be movies that benefit from the strike and from the cleared release calendar. Something like The Exorcist, I think, could actually benefit from there not being as much competition in theaters is an exorcist reboot. Jason Blum, the producer and David Gordon Green, who did Halloween. It's a very, you know, they do have Ellen Burstyn from the first movie, and that would have been a nice hook. But it's not star driven. It's not star driven. And I don't think it's dependent. It's IP. It's exorcist. It's Halloween. You're going to see it. So the non-star driven films should should keep their release dates, essentially. I think so. Now, the problem is a lot of these are IP plus stars. Like there's a Hunger Games prequel that's coming out. And yeah, that's IP and people know it's Hunger Games, but they want to have this young star, Rachel Zegler, out there telling young people to see it. So they're in this weird spot now where these studios have to make a decision soon and they can't count on the strike being over. So are they going to risk and kind of delay on pushing it? Denzel Washington's sequel, Equalizer 3, they've said they're not moving that. That's set for September 1. And I've heard that Denzel has done some press before the strike, so they may have some stuff that can come out around the movie. And he doesn't do a ton anyways. He has his audience and they show up. So I could see Sony keeping that date. And the movies that keep their dates are going to probably benefit from the lack of competition. And this will be probably one of the biggest challenges for movie marketing departments ever. Yeah. I mean, there are examples where actors are not available. They are on a lockdown set, so they're not available. What are the rules on uh, using uh, an AI image of an actor to market a movie? (laughs) Has that been established yet? (laughs) That might not do a lot to uh, settle the strike, considering that's what they're fighting over in the strike. But everybody is talking right now with their representatives and with the studios about what you can and can't do. And the Guild has been pretty strict. It's also going to help these independent studios like A24, presumably if they get some waivers for these film festivals, they can have their stars promote the movies. And some of the indies might actually benefit from this as we head towards the Oscar season in particular. There's a lot of politics at play, a lot of dynamics, but I think amid all the doom and gloom, there is actually opportunities here for some of these movies to take advantage. The indies and Denzel Washington. And Denzel, exactly. He needed a win. No, I mean, he's not going to be out there. He is on strike, but I do think he's a big enough brand, and that is a franchise where they could get away with putting it out there. And, you know, they have Antoine Fuqua. He could promote it. Well, and also that movie has roots. People know the first two. You don't need to promote it as much because if the movie is out, people have seen the first two. Yeah, but does that, but what about Marvel's? 
that's you know Brie Larson would help that movie, and there's other people in it that are you know younger and Sam well. Jackson I think that movie grow. needs as much help as it could get. <laughs> I know does not look great. Same with Wonka. Maybe you know I think there may be people studios that bump these movies and take advantage of the strike just to move them, just because they don't want to release a, a <laughs> mediocre bad movie. Yeah, they need to push Wonka so they can reshoot it. <laughs> they did. Lionsgate pushed the Dirty Dancing reboot they pushed it to like 2025 i'm like mm, the strike's probably going to be over <laughs> by then i don't think that's a strike related yeah. move i think wonka that's a... pushed to 2027 amid strike yeah i think maybe we should push wonka to never <laughs> oh, that would be a nice one all right that's the show for today i want to thank my guest lucas shaw i want to thank producer craig holbeck our editor jesse lopez and i want to thank you we will see you later this week 